Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Let me read this last line from Galatians 2, 10, 2 the 2 passage again. It says, Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, we come uh, to this passage in Nehemiah 5 this morning, and uh, Lord, we're, we're thankful for these passages in Nehemiah that have uh, shown us, in some ways, the beauty of your people working together despite the opposition outside that is seeking to foil their plans, and how you were with them, Lord. We're thankful for this, this book that has given, really, a, it's, it's an invigorating book, somebody with a broken heart for the brokenness of the world and the brokenness of the kingdom and a people joining together to do something, Lord. God, I pray, even as we come to Nehemiah chapter 5, which takes an odd and challenging turn, Lord, that you would teach us again this morning. Lord, meet us where we are and draw us into your presence. Amen. All right, some of you no doubt saw, as I did, um, Christians on social media blow up um, last month when President Biden announced his student loan forgiveness plan, uh, you're probably aware that if you make up to $125,000 a year according to the plan, you'll have uh, 10000 of your student loans forgiven. And if you're a married couple and you make up to $250,000 a year, you can have up to $20,000 of your student loans forgiven. You'll probably know there's a nuance to that too. If you took a Pell Grant, then uh, you can actually have up to $20,000 of those student loans forgiven. Um, before I continue on, let me read to you one of the uh, quotes at the top of your meditation page. This is by David French. He said, The only thing worse than social media shouting matches is social media shouting matches infused with religious intensity. So, so as you probably saw... The reactions had religious intensity to them. And of course, that was coming out of places of faith, of Christians saying this and that. How does our faith actually inform these kinds of discussions? Here's some of the comments. Here's two comments I read that are sort of on opposite sides of this. Here's one. Conservative Christians are fully enraged at hashtag student loan forgiveness Missing the irony that their entire religion is based on the idea of forgiven debt. Way to lose the plot, kids. Here's one on the other side. Christ came to forgive the debt of your sin. When he was on earth, he did not pay off everyone's financial debt. I know that those might seem like sort of extreme examples. I, I did ch choose them for that reason. I'll say that. Um, but it's sort of a good thing to get into. What does the Bible say about debt forgiveness? Let me read to you a couple passages. I'll read a couple more in a moment. But listen to this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 20. 
You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So it says just flat out, you, you can't charge your brother interest. At least Deuteronomy chapter 23 says that. Psalm 37 verse 21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. So it's a wicked thing to borrow and to not repay it. That's what Psalm 37 says. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 5 says this, It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. So just don't make a vow if you're not going to come through with your vow. And of course, um, our Lord says something very similar in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. He says, let what you say simply, simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from the devil. Now, and of course, we could get into other passages. We could consider the year of Jubilee. A year when all of God's people's land would be restored to them because they would go into debt for various reasons and use their land as leverage or actually sometimes their own being or their children as leverage and all of those debts would be forgiven in that year. Now, as far as we know, actually that year never happened in the history of Israel. But you know what's also strange about that is it's every 50 years. So it says there's, there's something to be said for that. Well, it's a debt that's forgiven every 50 years. That, does that mean you could be actually in debt for 50 years and be part of Israel? Of course, we can think of the famous parable of our Lord. Remember the, um, the, the servant who goes to the king and it says that he owed the king uh, 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, just a massive, massive sum. And the king wants his money back and he says, Lord, or he says, king, have mercy on me. And the king says, I'll have mercy on you. And that same man, that next hour goes out and he finds a servant that owes him, it says a hundred denarii, a little bit. And he says, give it to me now. And he has that man thrown in prison. And this is how that passage actually ends, right? The king hears of this and he calls the person back to him and says, he says, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And now this is our Lord's sort of comment after that. He says this. So also, my Father in heaven will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I mean, all of these passages seem like incredibly clear. Things just seem so obvious. But in, at times, it almost seems like they're saying something different. Okay, some of you might know that there actually has been a long debate in the history of the Christian church about the question of usury, which is charging interest, right? Um, and for a lot of actually Christian history, the church has said that Christians cannot charge interest to one another. And they actually should not even go into business dealings where there's interest involved. Um, let's just all acknowledge that that would put every, I would guess every single one of you with a couple exceptions into a massive problem right now with your houses, maybe with a car, maybe with a credit card, maybe all kinds of other things. But the church said for most of its history, don't charge interest and don't get into situations where there's interest. 
Now, you might, you might know that this was actually a significant debate in the 16th century among the reformers. Martin Luther, largely in an agrarian society, um, actually believed that, that Christians could not engage with, with usury. He just said, like, flat out, usury can't, can't do it, right? Now, uh, John Calvin, who was in a very urban setting, actually uh, what continues today to be a really financial capital, Geneva, took a different approach. And some of you might know that Calvin has been attributed to sort of introducing the idea that Christians can sort of belong to a completely laissez-faire capitalism. Because Calvin did say, you can actually engage with debt. Now listen to some nuances, okay? John Calvin, who is, you know, attributed to, to, to this sort of uh, idea of laissez-faire capitalism, he actually believed that there would be a cap on the amount of interest that somebody could be charged. Can anyone, I'm just going to throw this out there, can anyone guess what that cap was? 10%, that's a good guess. Anyone else? 50%? Praise the Lord, no. That's pretty high. Well, another number, anyone? Two, okay, that's closer actually. John Calvin believed 5% was the max that, that you could be charged interest on. 5%. Um, that means that nobody right now could get a 30-year mortgage <laughs> because 30-year mortgage is pushing 7% this week. Um, but here's the thing. He actually put a nuance on that. And he, it's actually very clearly written out to a letter to a, a friend. He believed that the only time that you could get into a situation where there was interest involved was that when both parties completely believed that it was mutually beneficial and they could both agree that the situation would allow them to affirm the rule that says that, the, that our Lord taught us, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So both parties had to agree, yes, I can agree to this principle, do unto others. Okay, so to take education as an example, interest could be taken on a loan according to Calvin, um, but the loan couldn't be beyond a certain interest, and it had to be agreeable to both parties that they could abide by that rule of doing unto others as they would have them do unto you. For the poor, Calvin took even a much stronger stance he actually believed that the poor could never be charged interest at all. That it was a Christian duty of Christian charity and almsgiving to care for the poor financially. And you could never charge them interest. He said caring for the poor was a necessity of following Jesus. And so I want you to think of a couple other passages that we find in the Bible. Exodus chapter 22, the second book in the Bible, it says this. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor. And so there's a nuance about lending there that Calvin would have grabbed onto and said, okay, well, if it's nuancing it, maybe it's allowed somewhat, but here's what it's talking about with regards to the poor. He says, you shall not be like the money lender to him. You cannot charge interest. And you shall not exact interest from him. That's Exodus 22. Deuteronomy 15 says this, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what is lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it from his neighbor, his brother, because the, Lord release, the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of, the, of yours is with your brother, it shall be released. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will be with you. So Calvin would say, see, this is directed towards the idea that you can only lend in such a way that could never put anyone into poverty, ever. Let me read one more and then we'll go. 
This is, this is my longest introduction ever. It's three pages long. Leviticus 25, 35 to 38 says this, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your, your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. And so this is what John Calvin says. This is a quote. We see that the end for which the law was framed was that men should not cruelly oppress the poor who ought rather to receive our sympathy and our compassion. Calvin also said that interest is acquired only in, interest can be acquired only lawfully when it can be said, quote, to have done no injury to anyone. <laughs> okay, so I think that there's something very clear that comes out of this. We should all be against payday loan, payday loans, okay? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you know this, but actually some states actually have caps. Almost all states have caps on interest loan, or payday loans, but it can be between 10 and 30%. If, if a payday loan is, and this is how they're typically structured, that if you get $100 and you have to pay it back within two weeks, you have to pay $15 on that $100. If you're doing $15 every two weeks on a $100 loan, that's a 400% annual interest rate. Okay, uh, we can all just say that Christians should never be in support of such a thing. I will also say that it's my own personal belief that Christians should not engage with the lottery because I think it unnecessarily preys upon the poor. It, 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 it actually is targeted more towards those with the greatest need. Um, and I think we should all just actually ask the question, does Christianity and does the Bible and does faith in Jesus actually help us it sort of inform our thinking about something like student loan forgiveness. But I think the major, major question should be, does this aid, does this, is the deference in this student loan forgiveness aid those who are well-to-do or those who are poor? That should be the driving question. Okay, that's my long, long introduction. It's almost the whole sermon. Why do I go into this? Why do I go into this? Because somehow, sandwiched between Nehemiah chapter 4, which was about opposition outside, remember Sanballat and Tobiah, and uh, Nehemiah chapter 6, which is also going to be about opposition outside of the people of God coming at them, we have Nehemiah chapter 5, where this very thing is taking place. Interest is being charged, and it's harming the community of faith so much so that they have to stop their work. They have to go, what is going on? And we have to deal with this. And you look upon it, and if you're an outside person and you're just looking upon this one situation of Nehemiah chapter 5, you say, they're eating themselves alive. The church of God is eating itself alive. It's like 1 Corinthians. You have internal opposition and it's this, these internal dynamics where people are actually trying to take advantage of one another. And if you were to, to be an outside looker who was looking on, you'd go, yuck, I want nothing to do with it. Okay, so we don't know, um, we don't know all the details of the problems that are happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, 
we don't know if it was because, you know, everybody had sort of stopped and they were rebuilding the wall. Maybe, maybe you remember Nehemiah chapter 4. There were some people that had to take spears and stand guard. And there were others, others right, who had the, their swords at their hilt and, and trowels in their hands and they were working. And maybe it was everybody was on deck and so there's this famine that's taking place because actually maybe they're not actually out in their farms around uh, Jerusalem doing the farming. One way or the other, there's a huge problem with regards to food. And people have to go and search for it. They, maybe they've got, foregone the work that produced their livelihood. But they needed money to get food to eat. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that this chapter, okay, and I think this is pretty clear, is talking about people who are of the same tribes, who are of the people of God, who are of the church, you could say, of the Old Testament. They're doing the same kind of work. They're all in this rebuilding process together to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And, and it's these very people in this chapter who are taking advantage of this situation and taking advantage of one another. Okay. What we know is that they're exploiting one another. Listen, okay, I'm going to read to us verses 1 through 6 again. I'm not going to read, we're not going to look at in detail at all this chapter, but I want you to hear this. Now, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters were many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of this famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. So they've even actually put up on collateral their own children. We're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it's not in our power to help it. So they're powerless. For other men... Keep in mind, this is of the Jewish people, right? That's what it's saying here. The outcry rose up against their Jewish brothers. Um, For other men have our fields and our vineyards. Verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you're exacting interest. And this is what I want you to get at. Again, it's being very clear here. Each from his brother. Each from his brother. Now, interest means here in this passage, actually, it just means to loan or to lend. Um, There's nothing in this word itself that means that they're sort of going to the greatest extent of the legal possibility of lending, right? There's there's nothing in this that makes you think that this is a payday loan situation, if you will. Um, It's not clear that they're sort of taking complete advantage of sort of a complete laissez-faire situation. What might be happening is they're just sort of doing sort of normal business that's sort of allowed, is what I'm suggesting to you. But what is clear, this is what Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament um, scholar, said in his commentary. He says, they were lending under the best cover, but with the worst motives. I mean, what's clear is that they're taking advantage of one another, and they're harming one another. And these are their brothers and their sisters. In this market here, Everything was in favor of the lender. And what seems to be the case is that the lender had no problem engaging 
with the one needing something in such a way that caused them harm. They're treating their brothers and sisters as a pawnbroker would. We're going to think about this. We're going to put your son and your daughter up on this shelf. And when you have money to come get them, we're going to charge you for the cost and all the interest we can get out of you for your son and for your daughter. And what I sort of want to impress upon you is think about this, okay? Chapter 4 ended with this massive resolve. What I suggested to you last week is that we saw this opposition to God's work, but the resolve of the people to stick with it. So literally they had their sword at their side and a trowel in their hand, and they're working and they're working and they're working. And it seems you get to the end of chapter 4 and you're like, man, if they can do this, if they can be organized in such a way and they can have such resolve, yeah, this wall's going to come up. This this church is going to get built. Great things are going to happen from these people. Maybe they will live in such a way that Tobiah and Sanballat even will come to faith in Jesus. They're so resolved. And then we learn that sometimes the greatest opposition doesn't come from outside the church, but from inside the church, right? It's not just an outside thing, it's an inside thing. Um, my own pastor growing up, Rob Rayburn, said this, as the saints are building the city of God, Others are selling it off the back lot. Sometimes the greatest opposition to the work of the kingdom doesn't come from outside of the church, but from inside of the church. Sometimes this opposition comes because the church, the church has always been this mixture of absolute radioactive sinfulness that just seems to touch everything and somehow glorious holiness and righteousness. And it just seems so mixed together. Think about this. Um, One of the greatest reasons for people coming to faith in Jesus, and um, you and I both, we, we both know this is true, is that somebody has engaged with another Christian and they've thought, wow, what a changed life. What a beautiful engagement. I mean, look at this community of faith that loves one another. I want to consider that kind of life, giving my life to Jesus because I've seen this person whose life's been changed by Christ. And we all can probably recount some people like that, that they gave their life to Jesus or they renewed their faith in Jesus because they saw someone they thought, wow, if God can do that there, maybe he can do that with me. And we all know. I would, I would guess, actually, each one of us can maybe even make a list of people on the flip side who maybe at one time actually followed Jesus. And they said, you know what? I've been a part of a church. I've engaged with Christians. And I'll tell you what, I want nothing to do with it ever again in my life. Or you can think of non-Christians. I guarantee you can. I can think of my own list. Who say, you know what? Why do I not want to even consider Jesus? Because I look at the church. And the first word that comes to my mouth is yuck. No, thank you. I don't want anything to do with that. We know, I mean, think even recently. People who have left the church because of pastors 
grabbing for money. Because it being found out that pastors had multiple mistresses. Because the pastor ran off with the secretary. Because of how people within the church engage with their money, are selfish, and hoarders, and with their time, just taking. And, and we know that the list could go on. We could all just brainstorm a list of all the reasons that our friends and our family members want nothing to do with Jesus. Here's the weird thing, right? In Nehemiah here, the walls are going up. <laughs> I mean, really. Just chapter 4, the walls are being built despite the fact that you'd think there's no way this could happen. And they're charging interest to the extent that they're children. It's a question whether or not they'll see their children again. New and fresh life and uh, fresh faith seems to be demonstrated. Right there in the last chapter, something we can see and go, wow, this is amazing. God at work. And then we just turn the page and we go, what? Selling each other off the back lot. We see failures that are so obvious, sin that entangles and clings and causes great harm, and it disgusts all who have eyes to see it. And one of the things I want to suggest to you is this is just what we always see in the community of faith. It's a huge, beautiful mess. <laughs> it's just a total mess. That somehow it's got chapter 4 and chapter 5 just all tangled up with it. And it's just always the case. There's times, I think, I think there's times um, when, my guess is if you've been a Christian for a long time, that you've experienced this kind of time. When you've looked upon the, the church and all of this great mess, and you sort of want to just go, yuck, I don't really want, I don't think I want to have anything more to do with this. This is too messy, it's too hard. People backfighting and backstabbing and, and all of that. And it's, I mean, it's true. I'm not going to get into all the long list that I could make as your pastor. But this church is a mess, right? It's just a mess. I mean, if I, like, I could, I can maybe think of a couple things we do really well. And I'm not trying to, like, put it on you. I mean, I'm the pastor, right? Um, there's quite a few things I think we do really passably. And I can't put it on you because and I hope you don't think of it just as like, oh man, yeah, that's crazy. Because if, I think if you look at your own life, you're probably going to think actually seems to be true of myself too as an individual. There's times where I actually see God at work in me and I go, wow, Lord, you actually are like shaping me and changing me. You're giving me a delight where my delights should be and a hatred where my hatreds should be. And you're, you're like really actually at work. And then there's times where it's like, what am I doing? Why, why am I having these thoughts and these actions? Why am I just festering with anger sometimes? And why is it persisting for so long? What happened? I thought it was a, I was in Nehemiah 4. Why do I... And the fact is, is that this has just been the history of the church. I want you to think with me about the, the church in Corinth, okay? Um, 
Because the people of Nehemiah's day and the you and I and, and this church really aren't actually any different, right? Um, the book of Corinth, you might remember, right, that there's these divisions that take place. And some of them, some of them we can almost sort of laugh off. And some of them are just ones that we're like, yeah, that, I know that idea. Where they go, oh, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And some of you are like, well, I'm of Steve Heidenbaugh and I'm of Jed Sloboda and I'm of Peter Rowan. And you're like, that's just what happens. We have our favorite preachers, blah, 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 blah. And then you keep reading, your, reading, the, reading the book and you're like, oh, wait, some Christians are taking other Christians to court when they could actually resolve it in the church. That's not very pretty. That's kind of more ugly than just the, I'm of Paul, I'm Apollos. And then you read on and, you, and then Paul actually says stuff like this. He says, and there's great sexual immorality among you, so much so that it's actually detested by the pagans. Namely, that one of you is getting it on with his dad's wife. That's actually what it says. Not the getting it on part, but it's the same. He says that, like, you know, a different kind of way of saying it. And now we're all like, whoa, okay. Okay, that's not helpful. And then actually, you might know this um, chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. You know, this chapter that where we recite part of it almost every week during the Lord's Supper. What it says is that you're abusing the Lord's Supper itself so much so, and this is what it says. Well, by the way, this is the rich actually going, we do know this, it's the rich going first and bringing their food and their wine and the poor coming later. And it's so much so that this is what Paul says. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. At the Lord's table. At the Lord's table. Do you know that the next couple chapters are all about spiritual gifts? That God actually lavishes upon his people and upon communities like this where they're taking each other to court and they're going, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos. And they're going, oh, I don't know what I should do with my body with regards to sex. And they're going, you know, let's just have some people go forward and get drunk and then the other people can come and be hungry. Reinhold Niebuhr um, sort of a neo-Orthodox theologian in the first half of the 20th century, he, he said this, the church is much like Noah's ark. One could not bear the stench within if not for the storm without. John Calvin said this, that the church is slowly creeping through the greatest difficulties and it scarcely attains during a long period to the condition of mediocrity. <laughs> That's what John Calvin says. Slowly attains to mediocrity. What I'm suggesting to you is that the church has always just been this great big mix of sin. And real, real life failure. And yet real life beauty and holiness. And we all sort of go, Lord, why would you, why wouldn't you, when you justify us, just completely sanctify us? <laughs> why not when you call us to yourself, would you not just completely change us into the image of your loveliness? Or why would you do that? Because instead what happens is that most of us look at this reality of this great mixture and I, I really do think that all of us do this from time to time if you've been a Christian for a little while. Um, and we think that the church is maybe just not worth very much. We kind of go, maybe, 
Maybe this is actually too messed up. Maybe this isn't a community to be a part of. If the church is doing this kind of stuff, why bother, right? Uh, And what happens if you sit in that for a little while is you actually just grow in this deeply critical spirit, you know? If you let that kind of thing fester, your spirit of criticism grows. And you begin to see nothing good about the church, and you begin to say nothing good about the church. And we begin uh, to move to a place where all we can see and all we can say of the church generally, and maybe you've even gotten to this place sometimes with our church specifically. So the only things you can really say are those things with which cut down. Because that's all you can see. All the things that are wrong. Um, I once heard Joe Novenson, he's a pastor. Well, he was a pastor at Lookout Mountain press outside of Chattanooga. He's now retired. I once heard him give this illustration of a bunch of guys kind of sitting around a campfire laughing and joking and and just talking about all the things that they hate about the church, giving their long list. And Jesus comes up and kind of taps one of them on the shoulder. It's my wife you're talking about. That's my wife you're talking about. What are you saying? And the fact is, to use an Old Testament illustration from the Old Testament prophet Hosea, the church may be a whore. But if you understand the book of Hosea, Jesus would say, yeah, but she's my bride. And I have died for her. And I love her. And I know all these crazy things that she's doing sometimes. Selling off her children for interest. And it's harming the good that they're doing. And they're taking each other to court. And there's all this sexual immorality going on. And it's harming. I mean, friends, your lives actually matter, right? Like the, the, the ways that you engage with one another, the ways you engage with your pocketbook and your day. And honestly, the priority you give to the Lord's day, it matters to the world. I mean, everybody else, you know, all of your values are more caught than taught. People are going to catch on to your values more than they're going to buy them by your words, Right? All of your actions deeply, deeply matter. But Jesus looks upon all of these actions and he knows all of the running after other gods, right? Think of Hosea, running after other lovers. And he knows the situation of, of Nehemiah chapter 5 and he knows the situation of all of the book of 1 Corinthians. And he knows your heart, and he knows mine, and he knows us collectively and he goes, yeah, that's a mess, but you know what? That's my mess and I love it. That's my bride. We don't need to gloss over the ugly. We don't need to not acknowledge it. It's written for us all over Holy Scripture. But I think also if the walls are still to go up despite sin, it needs to be named, but it also needs to be acknowledged that the Lord still works through it. I mean, I'm not going to go through all this passage, but if you keep going, right, in Nehemiah, what you see is he's really angry and Nehemiah does something about it, right? He calls everybody together and he deals with all this interest problem that's happening and how they're cutting each other down and they're putting one another into poverty and they're hurting one another's families. And he, he, re, he restores all this, but I want you to catch something else. This is pretty remarkable. Uh, verse 14, it says, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 22nd year, or 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, 
neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. So Nehemiah, he's made sort of the, the situation with interest right, but then he goes on to say, you know, what was rightly mine, I was made governor. I'm going to give up what is rightly mine. And watch, if you continue on, it says this. Um, Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on his people, on his people. Because the service was too heavy on his people. So what we see, what I want to suggest to you, just sort of of to close, is what we see in Nehemiah is actually a deeply beautiful picture of Christ. Because what Nehemiah could do is he could take what's rightfully his, look, I got this allowance of as the governor, and I'm just going to take it all? And you know what? All of you people who've been... uh, committing adultery with your, your stepmom and you've been taking each other to court and you're fighting over who the better preacher is and you're doing all this kind of stuff. You know, all of you, you just go off to the side. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're too annoying to work with. Instead, he doesn't take what's rightfully his and he gives it. He has 150 people at his table. It says Jews and officials. So the assumption is that there's some people that aren't officials, right? It's not like he's just hobnobbing with the people that have power. He's like, you, you don't have food today. I want you to come into my house. You, let's kill the ox. You, let's drink some wine. Bring it all together. And what I'm suggesting to you is really this is what we see in the good news of Jesus. He knows, Jesus knows all of our sin. He could list out your sins for you better than you could. He really could. He could list all the reasons why the church should not be loved far better than you could. And yet he he gives up what is rightfully his, the glory of heaven, and he comes and he gives of himself for you that you would be lovely, that you would be fed, that you would be nourished. And we're going to come to the Lord's table, and this is what we celebrate week in and week out, that Jesus gives of himself that you would have life, and he knows all of the reasons not to do it but he loves you still, and he works in you still. I mean, what we're going to see is that the people of God there here in Nehemiah continue to do the work. But it's so wonderful to stop for a second and say, you know, part of the biggest hindrance to the mission going forward is us. But you know what? Jesus still loves us. He does. He still cares for us. He still forgives us, and he still uses us. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah uh, chapter 5. Lord, Lord, we know our sin, and we know how we fail as a community, and we know the things that can be said about us. We, knew, we know the things that we say about ourselves, and yet you still come to us, and you love us as your bride, as your body. Lord, I pray that we might be a community that knows how our lives affect the mission of your people in the world, both for good and for ill, but that beyond that we might rest in your goodness and your kindness. You gave up the riches of heaven and became poor that we, through your poverty, might become rich. Glory be to you, Lord Christ, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.